It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. 26 degrees when I left for work today. I know it's not exactly the North Pole, but it was sort of one of those moments when I realized, okay, winter is here and it's not going away for quite a while. Enough with the weather report. Oh, here's an item about Britney Spears. There have been a couple of reports, places like Page Six, that she's working on a new album or project. And she goes on Instagram and says, just so we're clear, most of the news is trash. Three exclamation points. I think three exclamation points is the new one exclamation point. They keep saying I'm turning to random random people to do new album. I will never return to the music industry. And that gets three exclamation points. Um, will she really never return? Is she just not happy at the moment? Speaking of somebody who's not happy, and speaking as a fan of the West Wing, which I mostly came to later watching it online because I was busy when it was, you know, I saw a few episodes when it was in its heyday, which is 20 years ago. So the president of the United States in the West Wing, Josiah Bartlett, who's actually, of course, actor Martin Sheen, he had to call upon help from one of his West Wing staff members. Uh, he, the deputy chief of staff, Josh Lyman, actually, actor Bradley Whitford, because RFK Jr. Uh, put out some kind of statement saying that he was having a fundraiser and there was going to be some celebrities there, including Martin Sheen. But since Sheen is not on social media, uh, the I guess you'd call him the former president now, right, uh, issued a statement. He had Brad Whitford issue a statement saying not only is he not having any involvement at all with this Kennedy event, but he is wholeheartedly endorsing President Joe Biden. And the entire Democratic ticket. So he, know how to, he knows how to get results. Playing uh, president for those six or seven years uh, was, was good for him. Now, um, I just got in my inbox. I mean, literally, as I was sitting down at the mic here. A campaign ad unlike any I've ever seen before. And I used to not only cover campaigns, I used to critique the campaign ads for five different presidential cycles, so I would see everything. Wouldn't necessarily write about every single one, but I would fact-check them anyway. It's a Donald Trump ad. I haven't been able to find out whether this comes from the campaign or an outside group. But it starts off by saying, God gave us Donald Trump, citing the year, the date he was born. And then there's different highlights, video highlights from his presidency. You know, we needed someone who could take on the bureaucracy. We needed this. We needed that. Somebody who could work all day and do midnight meetings. Um, now, clearly, some, I don't know, some religious people, I imagine, would be offended by the idea that Donald Trump is God's messenger. But it's just, it's just what he likes to do. Because you could say, well, all he's saying is God made him the way God made the rest of us. Um, and if people, critics, detractors, non-Trump fans, snipe at this ad, which I assume is an online-only ad by somebody, 
Um, that will be great from the former president's point of view because that's what gins up controversy and then maybe somebody on cable does it and next thing you know, everyone's talking about the ad. You know, whenever there's a sort of a a day where he's not going to make a lot of news on one thing, he makes a lot of news on another. And I say this, you know, in a completely nonpartisan way, this is exactly what President Biden doesn't do. Days go by. Even when he went on vacation, and I, you know, it's fine, absolutely fine for Joe Biden to spend a week in the Virgin Islands. He works hard. Presidents are always working, even on vacation. I say that of Republicans and Democrats. But then, you know, he puts out a couple of statements. There was a couple of times, I forget if it was good economic news or something, we could have stepped in front of the cameras, you know, put on a sports jacket and talked and give, you know, that provides video for TV. Anyway, the other person who's talking is, since we're talking about Donald Trump, his lawyer, one of his many lawyers, Alina Haba. And she was on a podcast and she was asked whether her looks had anything to do with her suddenly being a major, not just attorney, but spokeswoman for Donald J. Trump. And at the end of this, she clarifies and says, no, that's not why I, I got the job. But she says, look, I don't think I'd be on TV or sitting here if I didn't look the way I look. This is a candid answer. I think I caught attention. I'm very honest about that. Um, I don't mind. I'm not a feminist, okay? I believe in strong women, but I want my door opened. Somebody said to me, Alina, would you rather be smart or pretty? And I said, oh, easy. Pretty. I can fake being smart. Listen, like, you have to be honest. doesn't hurt to be good-looking in this world. In the PR world, on TV, it doesn't hurt. And when you're good-looking, that's great, but it can also mean people think you're stupid. Okay. Just wanted to share that. Uh... And anybody want to argue with that? That it can be a help? Let's see here. Oh, I just want to read a couple paragraphs from this political piece about something that I uh, have spent a lot of time on, and that is the ouster just the other day of Claudine Gay as the president of Harvard. You know the backstory. Anti-Semitism, plagiarism. Okay, so... The column in Politico says it's not the right that did in Harvard's first black president, despite various people taking credit. And conservatives got involved, but I would say toward the tail end of the process. But yeah, let me just read this. Take it from Chris Rufo, the far right critical race foe, critical race theory foe, who DeSantis, that's Ron DeSantis, appointed to a state university board. Rufo, who helped publicize the plagiarism charges that ultimately doomed Gay, spent time this week taking credit for the media strategy that forced her out. He laid out the strategy weeks ago. It's as simple as this. Says Rufo, we launched the Claudine Gay plagiarism story from the right. The next step is to smuggle it into the media apparatus of the left legitimizing the narrative to center-left actors who have the power to topple her, then squeeze. And Politico says that's more or less what happened because it was the people who have power at Harvard University, members of the board, center-left, maybe fully left, that ultimately ran out of excuses for her 
and pushed her out. All right, story number one. Oh, look, story number one involves Donald Trump. You know, Trump either makes news or news is made about him. Here's the New York Times on his last day as president. Trump was, uh, you know, um, boarding Air Force One. No Republican of any stature showed up to say goodbye. This was obviously just a couple of weeks after January 6th. He was a pariah, said the New York Times, among Republican elites. Kevin McCarthy, Mitch McConnell, blaming him for the Capitol siege, at least in part. And now, three years later, the anniversary, of course, is tomorrow. And I'll digress for a second to say, later today, President Biden is giving a speech about January 6th and about Donald Trump that is going to get a huge amount of coverage. He's doing it near Valley Forge and, you know, represents a pivot for his campaign. Not talking about Bidenomics, not talking about um, all the laws he passed. Going to be talking about Trump. Picking up with the time story. Today, Trump has almost entirely subjugated the elected class of the Republican Party. By the way, he's been endorsed by almost 100 members of the House. Ron DeSantis has five. Nikki Haley has one. Trump has 19 endorsements in the Senate. Trump obsessed over his scorecard of endorsers, according to more than half a dozen Trump advisors and people in regular contact with him, of course, all insisting on anonymity. Trump works his endorsements through both fear and favor, happily cajoling politicians by phone, but firing off ominous social media posts about those who don't fall in line quickly. Wow. I mean, in October, he knocked out of the race for Speaker, Congressman Tom Emmer, and two days ago, Emmer endorsed Donald Trump. Privately, the Times says Trump said, they always bend the knee, speaking about the Emmer endorsement. And then there are other holdouts, like Ted Cruz. When I interviewed Ted Cruz um, a couple weeks back about his book, he said he's not, he's not endorsing in 24. He's not getting into it. Ted, he shouldn't even exist, Trump recently said. Remember, Cruz ran against him in uh, 2016 and actually won the Iowa caucuses. I could have destroyed him, says Trump. I did kind of, I kind of did destroy him in 2016, if you think about it. But then I let him live. Now, before you get shocked about this, come on. Trump is unusually and sometimes brutally candid about this, but that's the way politics works. You don't endorse somebody, that's kind of like a slap in the face if that person thinks they deserve and warrant your endorsement. I personally think that with rare exceptions, endorsements don't mean much of anything. But, you know, if New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu endorses Nikki Haley, that's good for her. But I don't think it's a game changer. But if somebody like Trump, who was completely on the outs with the party that he rebuilt, gets 100 endorsements, you know, the general impression is that the establishment has welcomed him back into the fold. And that's why I think this story is important. Speaking of his rivals and polling, new poll out from American Research Group about 600 likely primary voters in New Hampshire. It was a similar poll, a similar number, 
a boy scout that I didn't touch because I thought it was an outlier. And I don't know. The polls bounce around. But in this poll, Nikki Haley, former governor of South Carolina, trails Donald Trump by just four points in New Hampshire. Four points is the margin of error. So that means that they could be tied. Or she could be trailing by as much as four. But that's the most competitive number I've seen. Now, the New Hampshire primary doesn't come until about eight days after Iowa. January 23rd is the date. So lots of uh, things could happen. But considering even in this this important early state polls, not to mention the swing state polls, that the former president has been way, way, way ahead, that's just an eye-popping number. What it means, we'll see. Um, It's Trump, 37%. Haley, 33%. Chris Christie, 10%. Ron DeSantis, 5%. Ron DeSantis is concentrating on Iowa. Speaking of which, the Florida governor is saying to an audience yesterday in not-so-veiled criticism of Trump, you're not going to have to worry about my conduct. I'll conduct myself in a way you can be proud of. I'll conduct myself in a way you can tell your kids that's somebody you should emulate. But Nikki Haley was also at a town hall. Actually, this was a CNN town hall. And that and DeSantis had one as well, separately. And she's still being asked, you know, about slavery and the Civil War. And now she's being asked about a joke she made where she's telling... People in New Hampshire, well, you know, Iowa votes first, but then you correct it. It was a lighthearted comment. It was a joke. Some people took offense. Some people manufactured taking offense. And then she's talking about the question of race and said she had black friends growing up. I'm not disputing that, but it's not the world's greatest thing to say. It's kind of like some of my best friends. You know, I'm all for the black population. Some of my best friends. Now, another issue here in which DeSantis is really ramping up his criticism is abortion. You'll recall, perhaps, that in Florida, signed by Governor DeSantis, is a six-week ban. After six weeks, abortions are illegal in the state of Florida, with some exceptions. And DeSantis said, speaking of Trump, When you're saying that pro-life protections are a terrible thing, by definition, you're not pro-life. How do you flip-flop on something like the sanctity of life? Well, in fairness, Trump said some time ago that what was a terrible thing was the way the Republican Party was talking about abortion, and he's not for a national ban. And if he was for a national ban, I think he would energize the left. It doesn't mean that he doesn't support for example, states, individual states that want to make abortion illegal or limited to a certain number of weeks. But now, says the Washington Post, the pro-life groups that had become very wary of Trump are back in the fold. I mean, was it last year? The head of the uh, Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America group called Trump's position morally indefensible. But now... That same person, Marjorie Danis-Felser, and other leading pro-life spokeswomen, spokesmen, 
said Trump has built a, an enormous amount of trust with pro-life voters. That's Dan and Felser. As his presidency was the most consequential in American history for the pro-life cause. And what they're looking at now is, you know, if he be- gets back in the White House and controls justice and HHS, what could be revisited is, for example, the 2000 approval of a key abortion drug, as well as whether or not abortion pills, widely used for 20 years now, could be the mailing of those pills could be banned. So these pro-life folks are saying to themselves, well, you know what? He may not agree with us on one thing, the ban, but he could do some things to limit abortion even further. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. All right. Now, on the other side, story two, Donald Trump's presidency during that time, the first two years, actually. House Democrats say his businesses received, excuse me, at least seven point eight million dollars in payments from foreign governments and officials in 20 countries, including China, Saudi Arabia and Qatar. And this is an old argument. We knew most of this, that this Some say this violated the Constitution's emoluments clause, which basically means you can't take money or gifts from foreign governments while you're president without permission from Congress. So, you know, Trump owned what we call here in D.C. the old post office building, uh, turned it into a hotel, and when they were coming to D.C., lots of officials from China and other countries would stay there. He was in the hotel business. Um, They looked at four buildings. I mean, Trump has got, you know, hundreds of properties around the world. The one here, one in New York, um, one in Las Vegas, and then Trump Tower on Fifth Avenue in New York. So it adds up to four. I screwed it up. Anyway, House Democrats, remember, their investigation got shut down when the GOP took over the House. These payments were made while these governments were promoting specific foreign policy goals with the Trump administration, even at times with President Trump himself. And they were requesting very specific actions from the U.S. to advance their own national policy objectives. Now, what jumps out at me here is, you know, the entire Republican Party is like Joe Biden. He's on the take from China, you know, unproven. But, you know, this money, where did it come from? Was it a loan? Did it come from China? And China, according to the Democrats on this panel, made the largest payments to Trump's private business, five and a half million bucks. It was the, or among the largest office tenants in Trump Tower while Trump was president. You may think that's terrible, but was was Trump supposed to ban them? Anyway, it's a legitimate issue, but um, obviously the Dems trying to get this to be a campaign issue. Story number three. I want to take a look here at the... uh, Middle East war. So interestingly, we now have, you know, so much media focus and rightly so has been on Gaza and all of the people, the Palestinians on that strip that have been uprooted, displaced, 
trying to find safety somewhere, going from the north to the south. But there's also been major evacuations in Israel itself. And this particular story, a lot of people have written about this, has to do with the northern border with Lebanon. Because Hezbollah, which is backed by Hamas, Lebanese fighters have continued to shell Israel for almost three months. And then, as you probably know, um, Israel fought back and killed a senior Hamas commander in Lebanon. Lebanon's vowing revenge. So Israel, even with all the wars it's gone through since 1948, has never before relocated so many people in wartime. And I'm just, here we go. Of 200,000 Israelis who've been internally displaced since the Hamas attack on October 7th, more than 80,000 are residents of these northern communities on the border with Lebanon. They were under military orders to evacuate. By the way, another 75,000 Lebanese civilians have evacuated. But in Israel, the government pays for the housing and meals of people while they're away from their homes. When will they get back, be able to return to their homes? Who the hell knows? And there's one town, has a population of 22,000, Kiryat Shmona, has been almost completely emptied out by the army's orders. And this is not the army's orders. This is not, um, you know, we think it would be a good idea for your own safety if you left the area. This is military-ordered evacuation. And a local official there, quoted by the New York Times, is saying... All these people, they have no certainty in their lives. They don't know when they can go home. Every day there are sirens. Every day people are being fired on. Every day they're running into shelters. It's intolerable, and it cannot continue. We can't go on being ducks in a shooting range. Look, you've got that on the Gaza side as well, but I didn't realize the numbers in Israel were so high, and so I guess what I would say is war is hell. Now, we talked yesterday, and you've undoubtedly been following this to some extent, this, these uh, two explosions in Iran at a memorial. Huge numbers of people were walking for the fourth anniversary of the killing of General Soleimani. And it did, it did seem like a terrorist attack. Israel said it had nothing to do with it. U.S. said it had nothing to do with it, didn't know anything about it. These were bombs, powerful bombs, apparently hidden in bags or some kind of containers uh, as all these people were approaching the memorial. And now ISIS has claimed responsibility. That happened yesterday. 84 people killed. The Islamic State, which nobody talks about anymore because it largely had been defanged. And that happened during the Trump administration. It's a Sunni Muslim organization, so it is very much at odds, or you might even say in a, a war, with Iran. Now, unlike Hamas, ISIS has as its mission to kill apostate Muslims, including Shiites. This is the old Sunni-Shiite split that was at the heart of the Iraq war that we, the U.S., got involved with 
when it was supposed to be a slam dunk, you know, about weapons of mass destruction and Saddam. And Shiite clerics are in charge of Iran. Most people who live in Iran are Shiites. And this is a um, group of different Muslims, Sunni Muslims. So, I wish I had better news, but, you know, as I said on Special Report a few days ago, everybody's worried, including Joe Biden most of all, I am sure, about the war widening. Well, now you have Israel increased tensions with Lebanon. Um, You have Iran, by the way, not exactly uh, rooting for Iran, although I'm not a, a fan of this kind of bombing of civilians. Not a fan. I'm being a little too cheeky here. It's abhorrent. It's awful. It's horrible. It's not a military attack of soldiers versus soldiers. So, you've got Israel versus Hamas. You've got Israel versus Lebanon. And Iran is, is the proxy that provides the funding and often the weapons for these different forces, whether it's the Houthis in Yemen, or whether it's Hezbollah in Lebanon, or whether it's Hamas in Gaza. And it sure doesn't look like this war is going to shrink or subside anytime soon. Let me come back to politics, number four. Rich Lowry, writing in Politico, talks about, and I've talked about this a lot, and I've talked to Ron DeSantis about this a lot, and I am going to talk to Ron DeSantis for this Sunday's Media Buzz. Should have mentioned it at the top, giving myself a wrist slap for uh, lack of self-promotion. We'll mention it again later. Anyway, Lowry says the extraordinarily unfavorable media treatment of DeSantis is the product of a press corps that doesn't like him or his ideological project. Also, semicolon, the campaign's mishandling of the press and its foolish initial assumption that it could basically ignore it. And a snake-bit campaign with its steady descent in the polls simply hasn't generated much good news. I think all those points are valid. I used to say... First of all, that DeSantis waited too long to get in when Trump was pummeling him. I also used to say that he needed to punch back when Trump was taking all these whacks at him. And he is doing that now and even going on the offensive without waiting to respond to um, incoming from the former president. But even though no one's voted yet, it's fairly late in the game. I mean, we're just over a little week out from the, uh, a little over a week out from the Iowa caucuses. So Lowry says, look, before he got in, as I was just saying, because I used to say this on the air, and everyone would say to me, the other guests would say, no, you're wrong. He shouldn't get in too early. Um, and I said, no, but he's letting Trump define him. And they would say, yeah, but people aren't paying attention now. Well, I think I was right. Sometimes I'm wrong, but sometimes I'll just pat myself on the back for uh, exactly one half second. All right, so... The storylines were he was waiting too long to get in. He was pursuing an overly conservative legislative agenda. He'd harmed his electability by signing a six-week abortion ban. He'd stepped in it in his fight with Disney. And he was too personally reserved to thrive as a presidential candidate. Uh, It might be said that the Sanders campaign couldn't have gotten worse coverage if it tried. But basically, it was trying. Um, The Sanders team believed it could do an end round 
and run, excuse me, around the mainstream press because it worked for him in Florida, where he did not get along with the Florida press corps uh, in 2022 when he had that landslide reelection. But presidential campaigns need the oxygen of earned media, says Rich. Even gobs of money can't substitute for it. So the campaign tried to generate free media by talking to conservative outlets. And the problem is that cordial interviews lose their interest quickly. Lowry writes, interactions with mainstream organizations reach a different audience, have the potential of generating fireworks, and got talked about in conservative media, too. That's the thing. You get the bank shot. You know, if you go on CNN or you go on some MSNBC show as a Republican candidate and it's a tough interview, then that gets replayed, recycled. Uh, maybe you get defended on outlets that lean right. And so media narratives are inescapable, this political piece says. Even if a candidate doesn't talk to the mainstream press, friendly interviewers will ask about storylines driven by the conventional wisdom. And it's right. I mean, it's just too big and messy uh, a media universe, especially in the age of social media, in the age of digital media, in the age when people get news on their Apple Watch, to control these narratives, they're going to be out there. The, the thing your candidate has to do is shape them. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. And now, number five, this also happens to be in Politico. This is about the incumbent president. A group of aides hired to reelect President Biden is breaking with him on the conflict between Israel and Hamas, to which I will jump in and say, which aides? What group? Who are these people? They work for the president of the United States and they're going to criticize his foreign policy? Now, look, you can have views that are not supportive of Israel or as supportive of Israel as your president. And there's one guy in a different department who just quit the other day in protest, and that's fine. He stood up and said, I can't support this. I work for the administration. I'm out of here. But this is an anonymous letter. Therefore, in my view, it carries no weight whatsoever. We don't know who these people are. They don't have the courage to put their names to it. They don't have the courage to put their jobs on the line. But they're going to hurt the president by taking these whacks. And I don't believe this counts for anything. Except... It makes them feel good. Well, you know, I stood up to the president. I signed this letter. Oh, yeah, I don't want anyone to know who I am, but I signed this letter. Here's a quote. As your staff, we believe it is both a moral and electoral imperative for you to publicly call for a cessation of violence. I'll just jump in and say calling for a ceasefire when Israel is fighting back after having been attacked in the most brutal and manageable fashion, even if you think Israel has gone too far in these three months of counterattacks, means Israel should just give up on its goal of eliminating Hamas, which may well be an unrealistic goal, but that's a separate debate. Complicity in the death of over 20,000 Palestinians, 8,200 of whom are children, simply cannot be justified. 
and they want President Biden to end unconditional military aid to Israel. I wouldn't say it's completely unconditional. And push for de-escalation, including the release of hostages. Well, who wouldn't like to get the rest of the hostages back? How exactly do you do that when some of them are being killed by Hamas, when they're being held in tunnels, when they're being held near civilian populations? This is the whole human shields uh, heinous approach of the Hamas terrorists. And so... The letter was organized by campaign staffers. Five of them confirmed its authenticity to West Wing Playbook, which is a regular column in Politico. Those staffers who were granted anonymity because of their concern of backlash said they were motivated to organize their letter out of a sense of moral responsibility, but they're also concerned that President Biden's handling of the war could affect his standing with voters. One staffer said it comes from a place of tough love. Yeah, but it's not tough. You may love Joe Biden, but you work for his campaign. You put out a letter like this saying he has the moral responsibility to stop Israel and win himself re-election. So you have the letter itself as anonymous. And then the staffers who were part of it, some of them, and it's not even clear how many total uh, signed it, unless I missed that point, are granted anonymity by Politico to talk about it. Oh, I'm sorry, 17 current Biden campaign staffers, 17 people want a ceasefire. But those 17 people are not known and may never be known to those who follow this. And I just, it just drives me nuts. I mean, it's one thing to remain anonymous when you're a source for sensitive information and you could probably get fired or lose your job or, or there be other consequences if your name was known in some kind of investigative reporting. It's another thing to just take a whack at your own president's campaign when you work for that campaign and do it anonymously. If I sound a bit riled up, it's because I am. Some days I sit down here and, you know, I'm nice and mellow. Well, some days. Uh, Other times I'm sharing the news with you. I'm sharing my feelings, trying to be straightforward about it. And that's why I like the medium of the podcast. Now, Sunday morning, 11 Eastern, 8 Pacific, Media Buzz. We are going to have or scheduled to have an interview with Ron DeSantis. I've interviewed DeSantis Twice before this, I've interviewed Chris Christie twice. I've interviewed Mike Pence, the only person, and I've invited her repeatedly, who's not accepted, even though her staff always tells me she wants to do it, is Nikki Haley. And that's fine. She gets to make her own choices. But I do wish at this stage, state of the race, that she was not the only major remaining candidate who's not coming on. But more important, I want you all to have a great weekend. Um, Maybe even take a break from politics. And I will see you back here Monday with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. 